0: Michael Gove was Chief Whip, but I'm afraid on one occasion he got locked in the loo, which is a thing for which a whip would normally excoriate someone else rather than do himself. So although I'm a very great admirer of the many talents of Mr Michael Gove, which is not, I'm not say I clear, agree with him, I don't agree with him, and I, in general terms, a personal admirer of his, no, but I respect his ability, his ability is much more as a decision-maker than as a whip. Indeed, I regarded him as an utterly ineffably hopeless Chief Whip, a fact of which, I think, he himself eventually became aware. Britain has one of the oldest systems of government in the entire world, but nobody sat down and planned that system. It's composed of numerous bits and pieces cobbled together over hundreds of years as the need arose. I'm John Burko, and for 10 years I was the Speaker of the House of Commons. I've seen our system of government at its best and at its worst, and I'm fascinated by who gets to operate the levers of power and what people do with them. In this series, with the help of Deborah Francis-White, I'll be looking at different aspects of our modern democracy, how they began, how they work, and how much influence each of them has. And we'll try to answer the question, where does power really come from? This is Absolute Power.
1: Hello to all who are listening on Her Majesty's Internet. I'm sitting here with former Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko. Hello, John.
0: Good morning to you, Deborah. Top of the morning.
1: It's a delight. And, and we are aware that people might be listening to this podcast at any hour of the day
0: well i very much hope so or even of the night
1: <laughs> uh, even of the night many people listen to podcasts while falling asleep that's that's true they they pick them up again later what i'm saying is you're you're the cure for insomnia
0: yes that is not an altogether auspicious omen as one starts one's recording <laughs> the thought that as one starts to speak and the sentence progresses and you move into the next paragraph people are losing the will to remain awake. This is profoundly depressing. If this is your idea of morale boosting, Deborah, I think it requires some practice and refinement.
1: Well, listen, I was very offended when I found this out as well. When I asked people in my audience what uh, what they did while they listened to The Guilty Feminist, uh, some said fall asleep. And uh, another podcaster said to me, no, 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 this is not insulting because you are intimately with them as they fall asleep. And, and you is it are... the
0: concept of the dulcet or mellifluous tone yes. that has a soothing effect?
1: Exactly. And and they finish the episode when they wake up, John. Right. But your voice is one that, you know, it's it's a reassuring voice. Thank you. It's a reassuring ah, voice. And
0: I'm starting to feel a little better.
1: There you are. Um, now, John, this is your new podcast, Absolute Power, in which you, John Burko, are going to be my guide, Deborah Francis White, through all the weird and wonderful aspects of our modern, in heavy, ironic, inverted commas, democracy. Indeed. And even that's the aim. The democracy part is looking a little shakier. You could say that. I <laughs> really do. But today on this episode, we are going to be talking about party whips. Now, some of our listeners may hear the word party and whip and have had a slightly more fun experience than what we're going to talk about today. The word whip, it sounds punitive. It sounds archaic. It sounds like it has a touch of the dominatrix about it. Indeed. Whiplash, dangerous. Whipped cream, delightful. So many connotations. John, in politics, what is a party
0: whip? A party whip is an appointed individual responsible for the maintenance of party discipline and the effective organisation of his or her troops. The expression the whip, as now applied to politics and for many decades and longer, is derived from its origins in hunting terminology. The whipper in in hunting, and I must emphasise that I do speak from personal experience of the practice of the sport. Good. We don't want want you to
1: get cancelled so early in the series.
0: I'm extremely grateful. Is a huntsman's assistant who keeps the hounds from straying by driving them back with the whip into the main body of the pack. So that, I think, carries with it the very clear implication that there is a disciplinary role. What the whip is seeking to do is to ensure that his or her members of the flock follow the party line. So that is the coax, the exhort, the persuade, the bribe, the threaten role of the whip.
1: Stop there for a second. John, you you said bribe. What do you mean by bribe? Yes,
0: I should emphasise, by the way, that... There's no question of a bribe in the sense of financial inducement or anything like that. I wouldn't allege any such impropriety. Sometimes the whips will say, well, if you can see your way to supporting us on this, you know, you will be aware of that upcoming opportunity for a group of members to visit the United Nations for a few days in New York. That would be an example.
1: No, you're going to get a jolly.
0: You can uh, go on some it, other trip did, of one description or another.
1: Did they offer you a £200 John Lewis voucher to do your Christmas shopping? No, work? I was
0: not offered any financial inducement whatsoever. It's well, I think a trip to, to the
1: UN, sense. I mean, that's, that is That is a little bit, isn't it? Like, if I was offered a jolly to, you know, have a fun time, this is just this is just stuff like go and do your Christmas shopping in New York. Or
0: sometimes a member who's got... Pressures at home of one sort or another, perhaps, you know, the arrival of a new baby or whatever, can be told, well, you know, if you need a bit of time off, you know, we might be able to help. I mean, those sorts of things were not uncommon.
1: If there was maternity and paternity leave, then we wouldn't have this problem. You wouldn't have to be bribed by a whip. But okay, all right, keep going. Each week,
0: Members of the parliamentary party, Mm the Conservative Party happened in the Labour Party, it happens in the Liberal Democrats. Members of the parliamentary party would get a written notification of the following week's business. Mm -hmm. What's taking place on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, etc. Something underlined once is what is called a one line whip and that means that you are invited to attend but you are not obliged to do so Great. so there's no disciplinary sanction if you don't turn up
1: okay so it's number regarded two. as
0: voluntary okay a number two-line two line whip is you are encouraged to attend two line whips are comparatively it, uncommon it, it would it be it would, you would be essential. it would be smiled upon it would be smiled upon and if the, you were to and and the so.
1: prime minister or the or the leader of the opposition depending on whether your party's in power would look at you and go oh you've
0: got- well you might Get a brownie point for earnestness and commitment. A
1: three-line, a three-line, whip. three-line
0: whip is be there or else be there and, not and just vote be our there, way. Yeah. But vote our way. Be
1: there and don't give a speech about how the opposition
0: is, is is right. Probably fair to say, Deborah, that there are different schools of whipping. So there is the charm school of whipping, and there is the thuggish school of whipping. The charm school of whipping goes something like this: Can I say to you? John, the leader of the party, thinks you're extraordinarily gifted and you've made such a wonderful and auspicious start to your parliamentary career. He's very struck by the eclectic range of talents that you regularly put on display. And he was saying to me only the other day, I would really very much like to promote him. Mm -hmm. The difficulty is, I'm afraid, that if you don't feel able to support us in the lobby tonight that very real prospect of early advance will, I'm afraid, evaporate. It's such a shame because you're such a gifted person and it would be such a pity.
1: This it is, would be this is similar threat. to the kind of language used in the mafia.
0: This, this is not dissimilar. This
1: is a lovely promotion you've got here coming up. It would be a shame if something happened to it. To it, yes, uh, precisely.
0: Well, uh, that undoubtedly is part of the charm school of whipping. There's no question about that. You know, a certain amount of coaxing and mm. cajoling. Cajoling, so that's so okay. exhorting. That's one sort of whip by saying, you know, you're really very able, and what a pity it would be. What a shame if what your otherwise shame. very auspicious future were to be abruptly terminated because you didn't do what we're telling you to do. Now, the alternative is the so-called thuggish school of whipping. I remember being told by a Conservative member of Parliament who had left the House by the time I was elected of the propensity of a senior whip. When he was in the house, to seek to intimidate people literally, physically, into going into the right division lobby. Now, the former MP who told what, me What,
1: like a this, thug standing at the door? Yes. The former, no. Yes, the former MP Stop who it. told
0: me this was quite a big, <gasps> strong chap himself, but he told me of a senior Conservative member, very, very tall and burly senior Conservative member... Boris Johnson. Who was... No, no, certainly not Boris Johnson, and no longer with us, no longer with us, who was accustomed to grabbing people and frog marching them. Towards the division lobby. Now, if I'm really candid with you, I think what I would say is that I would never have been vulnerable to that form of whipping because I'm sufficient of a rebel and inclined to stand up for myself that if somebody sought to brutalise me into doing something that I didn't want to do, it would be profoundly counterproductive. But in some cases, people were cowed, apparently, by the sheer intimidating, terrifying physical presence of this old thug.
1: What? But they didn't surely think he was going to drag them into an alley and give them a good kicking.
0: Well, I think they thought he was going to drag them into the division lobby and if they resisted, would probably suffer a good kicking. Now, is that very commonplace? Is that type of whipping particularly commonplace? No, I think quiet menace. I think quiet menace. That sounds like a police state.
1: That's terrifying. Well, I
0: think that times have changed as well. I think that you know there was a time when the tactics were very much more aggressive. I mean, to be fair, in my time in Parliament, I didn't witness anything approaching that. I didn't witness what you would call physical intimidation. I think in some cases, people were browbeaten. I think they were harangued. I think they were bombarded with messages from their whip. I know Mm -hmm. many people who testified to that and said they were getting heartily sick of being bothered Several times a day by a whip who was simply following up, I guess, and saying, Well, have you reconsidered? What are you minded to do? Can we be assured of your vote? Do you understand the premium that the Prime Minister attaches to this matter? etc. 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 Physical intimidation, however, I think is a rarity.
1: I'm now. pleased to hear it. Now. I'm pleased to hear it.
0: I myself, Deborah, over the years have been very critical of the whips. And as a Conservative MP, particularly in later years, I had a relationship with my whips characterised by trust and understanding. I didn't trust them and they didn't understand me. <laughs> but I should emphasise that in the modern British political system, there is a need for party discipline, for members to recognise that they're not there because of their own unique brilliance, but because they stood under a party banner, and that therefore it is not unreasonable for the whip on behalf of the leadership of the party to look to the member most of the time to vote with the party. That isn't itself, in my view, exceptionable or objectionable. It seems to me to be reasonable. Ultimately, a member has to decide on each issue how strongly he or she feels. The one thing, in my experience, that the whips abhor is a vacuum. Mm -hmm. They almost exist, if you will, to acquire, to store, to process, and to decide how to use the intelligence that is to say, the information they gain from their MPs. And if they're just kept guessing, or indeed worse, they're misled by a member as to how he or she intends to vote, that is likely to cause particular aggravation.
1: Uh, How do I find out what individual MPs really, really want, to paraphrase the Spice Girls, so that I can have some bargaining chips, so that I can go, well, if you give me this, I'll give you that, do they take you for coffee? Do they have spies? Are they, are they hacking your WhatsApp? Like, how? How do they do that?
0: Mainly by listening. The short answer is that the whip's office will consist of 10, 15 whips or thereabouts, and the chief whip will oversee the process, whereby each whip has a certain number of people in his or her flock. Mm -hmm. That whip is responsible for that group of MPs It might be 10, it might be 15, it might be 20 And a good whip will reach out to the members of his or her flock Meet them, possibly over copy, possibly not Possibly just in a corridor or in the whip's office Or in the member's office In the lobby, the member's lobby And chat to that member In my later experience, shortly before I became Speaker, I rebelled a number of times. Not a huge number of times, but I did rebel a number of times. And I thought the best thing to do was just to be upfront and straightforward about it and to tell the Chief Whip that I was not going to vote with the party that day. And there tended to be a rather gruff and curmudgeonly response. But nobody could say, well, John wasn't straight with us. John misled us. John was incommunicado and refused to engage with us, or worse, he gave us the wrong impression. He told us he'd vote with us, and then he let us down. I didn't do that. I remember on May the 11th, 2009, an recall, I know, Deborah. Slightly spooky and discombobulating. I saw the Conservative Chief Whip, Patrick McLaughlin, going into the tea room, and I knew that I was intending to speak and vote for the equality bill introduced by Harriet Harman that day. And it was going to be the second reading debate. And I decided to tell Patrick that that was my intention. And I knew that the party was recommending that the bill be not supported.
1: Because the, you were at this point um, uh, an MP, a Conservative MP, and Harriet Harman was suggesting gender equality?
0: It was a whole range of equalities, to be honest. Okay. It was partly a consolidation of existing measures and it was partly a mechanism to reintroduce a new public sector equality duty. And so, and so she brought it this... has a tinge of radicalism to it. It doesn't sound as radical
1: as all that, the idea that people be treated equally in Britain. So Harriet Harman suggests in this bill more people be treated fairly and equally. And the whip went... John, we're not for equality in the Conservative Party. <laughs> we would like you to vote against equality. And well, you said, I'm a man of principle. I'm a big fan of equality. Yes. Screw you. But politely you said yes. that. You didn't say screw you. Yes. You said, oh, I'm quite keen on what Harriet Harman's put yes, forward. Yes, I think
0: it's fair to say, Deborah, that that is quite an uncompromising characterization of the situation, which I could myself have volunteered by my natural restraint and moderation being such that I How- did not... so. And when I spoke to Patrick Mulholland at the time, I did say, well, I'm very committed to equality and I think that this is a good bill. To be fair to him, he said, and it was the conservative line, that he thought that it was a very bureaucratic bill, that the public sector duty was not going to be deliverable. And that, on the whole, there was no need at that stage for new legislation. It tended to be the Conservative attitude to say, well, voluntary arrangements will suffice. Mm -hmm. We don't need a big, heavy booted new law.
1: Britain has a long history of voluntary equality. Uh, People who were in powerful positions love dishing out equality, in fact, for hundreds of years gone around the world, delivering our particular brand of equality to other countries.
0: Yes, and it's also quite easy for a relatively fortunate white man to say, well, of course, we're all in favour of equality, but there's no need to have a law on the matter. Uh, Some of this is rather exaggerated, or this can't be delivered, or let's think about it next week, next month, next year, next decade. My view was that we're in the here and now, this was a modest and incremental, but to some degree with parts of it visionary, bill. I'd thought about the issues a lot, which I suspect some of my colleagues had not, and I'd come to the very firm conclusion that this was a desirable bill. And therefore, the fact that I was the only Conservative member who voted for it, didn't bother me one job. Were you?
1: Were you the only one?
0: I was the only one. and The conversation I had with the Chief Whip that day was quite amusing because I said, you know, Patrick, I just think I ought to let you know that I'm going to support the Equality Bill tonight. And he said, oh, no, no, it's a very bad bill. And I said, no, no, but I'm just telling you that that's my intention. And in a sense, I suppose, being the old party campaigner Mm. and senior hack that he was, he launched into an attempted... Critique Mm. of the bill. He
1: gave you his TED talk on why.
0: With which I didn't have the sense he was entirely familiar, but nevertheless, he did his best to say why he thought it was a bad bill. And I said, Yes, but I don't mean this in any spirit of discourtesy, Patrick. I haven't broached this matter or begun this conversation with a view to having a debate about the merits of the bill, on which I've already reflected at length and about which I've read widely and so on. I'm simply, as a courtesy, notifying you that I intend to vote for the bill. And with an air of resignation, he said, oh, very well. And he said, but the debate will probably run the distance. In other words, he said, the business probably won't collapse early. So what he meant was that the vote would probably not be till 10 o'clock. So he said, so you don't need to be around until then.
1: Oh, so I said, go and have a go and have a round in the pub. Across well, I the road. slightly
0: wondered whether he was hoping that the bill would collapse early. To be fair, he didn't say so, and I've no evidence that that's what he thought. But I slightly wondered whether he hoped that the bill would collapse early, and that I would have gone AWOL well and would end up missing the vote Mm. and therefore wouldn't actually vote against. But anyway, my rejoinder immediately when he said, so you don't need to be around till 10 o'clock, was to say, oh, uh, but that doesn't matter, Patrick, because I'm going to be there all afternoon as I intend to speak, (gasps) to which he replied, why on earth do you want to do that? And I said, well, Patrick, I'm a member of parliament
1: (laughs) and I have views
0: and I wish to express them.
1: And was he horrified? He because... looked
0: absolutely gobsmacked, as if, what a peculiar thing. I wasn't in any sense an habitual rebel against the whip. I can think of many members of Parliament on both sides of the House who rebelled a great deal more frequently. You've,
1: you've painted yourself as someone in a biker jacket. But I did Sitting rebel on the, from time to the, time. the backest of the back bench, just there with a cigarette uh, and uh, just, you know, a complete, <laughs> yes, yeah, listening to punk rock. On I didn't believe. In, put walk- it this way: I didn't
0: believe in quiet rebellion, Deborah. It seemed to me that if you were going to rebel, you might as well say so and explain why.
1: Become the party whip. There I am. I'm an MP. I'm an MP. Is that right? Yes. I've been
0: elected. Yes. Every whip is an MP. Yeah.
1: And in what world am I going to think? Oh, I think I'd make a good whip. Like who aspires to that? No child. Who I can see a child. You know, a child sitting sitting there. I'd like to be a train driver. I'd like to be an astronaut. I'd like to be an influencer. Um, I'd like to be the Prime Minister, but I don't think any child thinks, do you know when I grow up, I'm going to be a whip, I'm going to be Chief Whip. No. Uh, how? At what point do you go, that's a good career move for me?
0: Every so often there is a reshuffle in a parliamentary party and people who are on the backbenches are invited to join the front bench. And if they're invited to join the front bench, they're invited either to be what you would call a speaking member of the front bench, a shadow education minister, a shadow home office minister, a shadow environment, food and rural affairs minister, or that person might be invited to join the party's whip's office. And I think most people who are invited, even if on the whole they are given to public speaking and they enjoy expressing themselves, nevertheless think, well, it is probably a good idea accept this offer and what merit could there be in it from the vantage point of a newish or ambitious member. First of all, it's what the party has decided it wants you to do.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: It isn't likely to last indefinitely, but as part of the learning curve as to how the House operates and the way in which your colleagues think. And indeed, as a means by which to get to know your own colleagues that much better, it does have its merits. So, it's and a I know there are people stone, who right. say that a, a stint in the whips office, you know, can actually be quite useful.
1: Famous politicians who were once whips, name some. Was Boris Johnson a whip?
0: I don't think Boris Johnson was ever a whip.
1: Was Theresa May ever a
0: whip? No. Michael, Michael Gove was chief whip, but I'm afraid on one occasion he got locked in the loo which is a thing for which a whip would normally excoriate someone else rather than do himself. So although I'm a very great admirer of the many talents of Mr Michael Gove, which is I'm not not, to say just to I clear, agree with is... him, I don't agree with him, and I, in general terms, a personal admirer of his, no, but I respect his ability, his ability is much more as a decision-maker than as a whip. Indeed, I regarded him as an utterly, ineffably hopeless chief whip, a fact of which I think he himself eventually became aware. Not um, that I thought it, but that he was, if you see what I mean. he was a Probably po- both. He, he probably knew I thought he was useless.
1: I mean, again, can we WhatsApp him and just see?
0: We could ask. <laughs> You'd probably get a rather elongated reply.
1: Oh, come on, let's do it. Please, please. Let's, let's just text Michael Gove and which
0: go... Which may well be prefaced by, I'm extremely grateful to you, Deborah. It's extraordinarily kind and gracious of you to contact me to volunteer your opinions today, to which I shall now reply comprehensively. And it thinks. So.
1: Uh-huh. is that what I'm going to get back? Probably. Okay. Um. So. <laughs> oh. Okay. Now, so in a very small
0: number mm. of cases, and it is a small number of cases, people who go into the Whip's office thrive. They love it. They just
1: love whipping, and they decide it.
0: that they're very happy to stay in the Whip's office. And either they give the impression that they would like to climb up the Whips' ranks, or the Chief Whip thinks. This person is particularly good good at whipping whipping, and therefore should be earmarked for a higher ranking within the hierarchy because there is a whips hierarchy. There are some very junior whips who are usually called assistant whips. But in case you're thinking, well, what's the attraction? You're just incarcerated within the office. You're not allowed to speak. You just sit listening to people droning. You on. presumably you can never vote against. You have to and threaten the, people the, to turn up. You can never vote against the party because you're a member of the front bench or a, a whip. You've got to do what the party line decrees. Does you agree the whole front What's bench, the, does the whole front bench? The attraction? But it's part of the promotion process and it's part of the parliamentary and colleague familiarisation process.
1: Does the whole front bench have to vote with the government every time?
0: The Could, whole. Government front bench, what is called the payroll vote, yeah. has to vote with the government. What if they all just couldn't? The
1: what if they said, this is fascist, I just can't do it? They'd have to resign as minister, and that sometimes happens.
0: If a member of the government front bench disagrees with the party and wishes to be public about it, he or she absolutely or has to resign from the front bench. No okay. question about it. There are instances in which A member who's not keen on something but is a valued member of the government is accommodated. Mm. I remember a Conservative member who's no longer with us once told me that when he was a minister, there was something that particularly irked him, and he said so privately. And he was given leave to be on a ministerial visit so that he could vote yep. for that particular policy. Christmas again. But Christmas that is June. quite rare. I mean, does that happen all the time? Is that sort of a regular accommodation? No, because, of course, if it were, you know, people would constantly say, well, of course, in general terms, as a member of the government, I support the government but I don't want to have to vote for this or for that or for Mm -hmm. the other so those accommodations you could abstain if you
1: felt very strongly well Um,
0: probably not even abstain Uh, certainly not abstain in a a knowing and public way you would be accommodated you would be mm -hmm. told well look go on a visit somewhere and that's your reason for being absent
1: Right, so so we will you, send you, you somewhere. Are you able
0: to say I have abstained no. on a government vote? Absolutely not. That would be regarded as an unpardonable sin.
1: Can I say I find the whole thing pernicious that people now... in? I understand the history of people needing to turn up to vote. I understand the history of that. But uh, given we now have, I don't know, email, I'm going to suggest that my MP not being able to vote because he's on a you know a jaunt to Manchester or he's doing something or he's at the UN or something. that's that, what is that? No, we everyone should vote on everything. That's sh- the, the idea that you can well, be away and you
0: and I are progressives alike. We would dance round the mulberry bush in joyous appreciation of the merits of electronic voting. Mm-hmm. For my own part, I celebrated the idea of electronic voting, but the House is quite a small C conservative institution. And although there's always been a sizable minority of people, and I think it will grow with the inception of new intakes and younger members who want to vote electronically, there's a very large number of people who still value what I regard as this long-winded, wasteful and anachronistic method of voting called going through the division lobby and taking 15 minutes over the matter. Mm. That, to me, is not a very profitable...
1: When Gen Z are MPs, they will be able to vote on Snapchat. Just putting that out there. TikTok voting. TikTok voting. They're going to be able to do a dance, which (laughs) implies which way they're going to vote. Um, Do you think I would make a good whip, John?
0: I don't want to sadden or spook you in any way, Deborah. And if it is an aspiration, then clearly we will have to have career development interviews on a regular basis and I'll try to get to know you better and see whether there's some scope for redemption. My own personal view at the moment is that you have a a remarkable litany of talents of which the capacity to whip effectively is not one.
1: Why? I think I I could be very persuasive. You are too
0: much of a free spirit yourself Mm. and therefore you would immediately understand the objection to taking the party line that was proffered to you. Mm. In other words, I suppose what I'm saying is I think that you would... Be a bit of a softie.
1: Oh, do you think I'd be a pushover?
0: Well, I'm not sure that I would want to use such a disobliging or pejorative term, but I think you might be more inclined to give the rebel the benefit of the doubt. And the would be a danger I would. of you joining the rebellion oh, rather yeah. than snuffing it out.
1: No, you're absolutely right. So, I would say vote with your conscience, I see. So
0: I, I'm trying to let you down gently, Deborah. I think you've got an enormous range of gifts. So Do oh. I think you'd be a good whip? No. Do I think that you would be a very good free-spirited... Pain in the neck to a parliamentary party. Oh, of that I have. Are you accusing
1: me of being Philip Davis? Because I will not stand for that. Uh, No,
0: I would say that you would be the feminist Philip Davis.
1: (laughs) The feminist Philip Davis of the Oxymoron, the member for Shipley. The most oxy of the oxymorons. At Gramsky the cat asks Do they have actual whips?
0: I didn't witness any, that is to say I didn't see any or feel any at any stage, but I do recall the one-time Labour chief whip, who's now distinguished and illustrious deputy speaker, Rosie Winterton, telling me that I think she'd got, if memory serves me correctly, a portrait on her wall of... Somebody holding a whip in hand. So, so she'd had even painted
1: of, of herself holding a whip. I mean that's might even an intimidation. Somebody thing. with
0: a whip in hand, and it was almost a self-tease, if you will. Mm. But did I myself otherwise witness whips being disported?
1: <laughs> As still it were. worse,
0: used.
1: If I no. if I were a whip, I would go and have a long uh, photography session in a studio where I would dress like a dominatrix, like a sort of catwoman dominatrix, and I would have lots of different poses, and then I would display a a large like life-size portrait behind my desk, because I feel that's all I'd need then. Yes. And it would sort of add a frisson. It would add a frisson, and it it. may
0: considerably contribute to your feeling Mm. of imperious power. Mm. The trouble is that natural empathy with the underdog and that understanding of the dissident point of view, that tendency to see it from his or her point of view as rebel, would keep getting in the way, Deborah. Uh. So that physical image might sustain you in your role as chief whip for a short period. But ultimately, I've got an awful feeling you'd not only not discourage the breach of the whip, you might even commit the ultimate sin as chief whip of rebelling yourself And then your career as Chief Whip and all the physical appurtenances of office and the portrait and so on would almost literally go up in smoke. That would be a sad demise. I
1: think it makes a great film.
0: And you could write a book about it. Yeah.
1: How does knowing about the whip help somebody who is a grassroots activist or someone who wants to get more involved in democracy?
0: Knowledge of the whip isn't that widespread, I would say, at the grassroots level, because it is very much a parliamentary phenomenon. If I were to muse on the matter for a moment, I suppose I would say that the subject of the whip will tend to occur to someone who, having seen publicity about a controversial vote, is minded to contact the local Member of Parliament either to press the claims of loyal adherence to the party line, or perhaps more likely to say, please be bold, please be brave, mm. please be different. Did please anyone... stand up for what you believe and what I believe and don't go along with
1: this. Did anyone contact you when you voted for uh gay couples being able to adopt children, which was against the whip, unbelievably, of your constituents contact you and say, Could you please vote uh f- could you please vote for this?
0: I got a few approaches afterwards. There wasn't much discussion about it beforehand because I don't think there was any great awareness of the imminent vote, so far as my constituents were concerned. But I got a few approaches afterwards and it was on a very small scale and it was a mixture. I got several saying, what a disgrace. You haven't done the right thing. Oh, You have
1: got the wrong start on the
0: issue and you've been disloyal to the leader. As well, so, this,
1: so this play on both
0: your houses, so to speak. This
1: was a uh, a bill saying that gay people should be allowed to that adopt gay children. Couples gay
0: couples should be allowed jointly to adopt children, okay. and not just gay couples, but heterosexual unmarried couples. And
1: was this when Labour was in power?
0: This was in two thousand and two, when Labour was still in power, and the Conservative members of Parliament were instructed to vote against that provision. And I decided to resign from the Shadow Cabinet and to speak in the debate and to vote in favour of the right of gay... Because
1: you had to, to were a minister at this point. I'm
0: couples as well. I was a shadow minister at the time. I stood back from the front bench. I resigned and said I was going to follow my own conscience. So I got some critical letters from people saying, either you're wrong on the issue or you've been disloyal or both. But I did get a sprinkling of letters from people around the country saying, well done you. You've taken Mm -hmm. a progressive stance. You're right. It's always easy to be... The person who just says me too and goes with the flow and does what the crowd stipulates and you've actually been bold and you've stood up for yourself the numbers involved tend to be relatively small in other words if you're asking me did I get a huge volley of correspondence on the subject no and you can't please everybody and I remember actually that when on a free vote on the age of consent a couple of years earlier I voted for an equal age of consent that I got a flurry of hostile letters from people who, I have to say, were deeply homophobic.
1: Um, So, finally, John, where would you put the whip in terms of influence in British politics? Where do they sit on the scale from basically irrelevant to absolute power?
0: I would say that they are somewhere between 70 and 80% effective in getting their way. But at the risk of providing a rather serious answer to your question, it is a matter of recorded fact that the incidence of intra party rebellion against the whip is much greater now than it was decades ago. In other words, you sometimes hear people say, well, of course, in the good old days, in the golden era, you had these wonderful, free thinking, independent minded members of parliament, usually of private means, who weren't influenced by considerations of ambition, or even particularly of party loyalty, but were motivated by a desire only to do the right thing and to speak and vote as their judgment decreed. That, frankly, is a myth. There was an era in which there were huge numbers of independently wealthy MPs who weren't particularly ambitious, but A, a lot of the time they didn't turn up. And B, when they did, they overwhelmingly voted with the party. The evidence also is that in the 1950s, there were whole sessions of Parliament in which nobody voted against the whip. Mm. And the reality is that since the 70s, the incidence of rebellion against the whip has greatly increased. New MPs, thinking for themselves, doing as they willed, ignoring the instructions of their elders and betters. Perish the thought, but they did.
1: You have been listening to Absolute Power with me, Deborah Francis-White.
0: And me, John Burko.
1: Recording facilities were provided by Spiritland and the music was by Hannah Ledwich. The producers for The Spontaneity Shop were Ned Sedgwick and Tom Salinsky. Absolute Power is part of the ACAST Creator Network and the House of the Guilty Feminist. For more information about this and other episodes, visit absolutepowerpodcast.com.
0: We hope you've been enjoying this new series of podcasts. We're going to take a couple of weeks off over Christmas, but Deborah and John will be back with more absolute power in the new year. See you then, and thanks for listening.